Hi, today is November 22nd, 2020. We are reading from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, starting on page 53, the end of the page that was natural through the end of the chapter, We Agnostics. Um, today, our reader is going to be Jeff H., and it'll be followed by a 20-minute share by Jeff S. So Jeff H., if you could please read for us. Thank you, Kim. Uh, my name is Jeff Harpin. I'm a uh, compulsive overeater, and here we go. That was natural, but let us think a little more closely. Without knowing it, had we not been brought to where we stood by a certain kind of faith, or did we not believe in our own reasoning? Did we not have confidence in our ability to think? What was that but a sort of faith? Yes, we had been faithful, abjectly faithful to the God of reason. So in one way or another, we discovered that faith had been involved all the time. We found, too, that we had been worshipers. What a state of mental goose flesh that used to bring on. Had we not variously worshipped people, sentiment, things, money, and ourselves? And then, with a better motive, had we not worshipfully beheld the sunset, the sea, or a flower? Who of us has not loved something or somebody? How much did these feelings, these loves, these worships have to do with pure reason? Little or nothing we saw at last. Were not these things the tissue out of which our lives were constructed? Did not these feelings, after all, determine the course of our existence? It was impossible to say we had no capacity for faith or love or worship. In one form or another, we have been living by faith and nothing and little else. Imagine life without faith. Were nothing left but pure reason, it wouldn't be life. But we believed in life. Of course we did. We could not prove life in the sense that you can uh, prove a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Yet, there it was. Could we still say the whole thing was nothing but a mass of electrons, created out of nothing, meaning nothing, whirling on to a destiny of nothingness? Of course we couldn't. The electrons themselves seem more intelligent than that, at least so the chemists said. Hence we saw that reason isn't everything. Neither is reason, as most of us use it, entirely dependable, uh, though it emanate from our best minds. What about people who prove that man couldn't ever fly? Yet we have been seeing another kind of flight, a spiritual liberation from this world. People who rose above their problems, they said God made these things possible, and we only smiled. We had seen spiritual release, but liked to tell ourselves it wasn't true. Actually, we were fooling ourselves. For deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or other, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was a part of our makeup, just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. 
We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. Uh, we can only clear the ground a bit. If our testimony helps sweep away prejudice, enables you to think honestly, encourages you to search diligently within yourself, then if you wish, you can join us on the broad highway. With this attitude, you cannot fail. The consciousness of your belief is sure to come to you. In this book, you will read the experience of a man who thought he was an atheist. His story is so interesting that some of it should be told now. His change of heart was dramatic, convincing, and moving. Our friend was a minister's son. He attended church school where he became rebellious at what he thought an overdose of religious education. For years thereafter, he was dogged by trouble and frustration, business failure, insanity, fatal illness, suicide. These calamities in his immediate family embittered and depressed him. Post-war disillusionment, ever more serious alcoholism, impending mental and physical collapse brought him to the point of self-destruction. One night, when confined in a hospital, he was approached by an alcoholic who had known a spiritual experience. Our friend's gorge rose as he bitterly cried out, if there is a God, he certainly hasn't done anything for me. But later alone in his room, he asked himself this question, is it possible that all the religious people I have ever known are wrong? While pondering the answer, he felt as though he lived in hell then, like a thunderbolt, a great thought came. It crowded out all else. Who are you to say there is no God? This man recounts that he tumbled out of bed to his knees. In a few seconds, he was overwhelmed by a conviction of the presence of God. It poured over and through him with the certainty and majesty of a great tide at flood. The barriers he had built through the years were swept away. He stood in the presence of infinite power and love. He had stepped from bridge to shore. For the first time, he lived in conscious companionship with his creator. Thus was our friend's cornerstone fixed in place. No later vicissitude has shaken it. His alcoholic problem was taken away. That very night, years ago, it disappeared. Save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink even if he would. God had restored his sanity. What is this but a miracle of healing? Yet its elements are simple. Circumstances made him willing to believe. He, um, he humbly offered himself to his maker. Then he knew. Even so has God restored us all to our right minds. To this man, the revulsion was sudden. Some of us grow into it more slowly, but he has come to all who have honestly sought him. When we drew near to him, he disclosed himself to us. Thank you so much, um, Jeff H. And now we're gonna have Jeff S. Uh, share on the reading for about 20 minutes. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Ken. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm Jeff S. Uh, from New Jersey, and I have to say I'm feeling a little nervous. Uh, I often don't speak in front of a lot of people, even though I've been around a long time. 
So if I have a brain freeze, uh, I won't blame it on my internet. It will just be me. Um, and I'll start off giving a qualification. I've been in OA for 30 years. I came in December 8th, uh, 1990. Uh, so that will be my 30th anniversary. Uh, I have a little over six and a half years of my best abstinence and uh, I'm maintaining a 95 pound weight loss. So those are my key statistics. Um, so let me, let me relate the way I was before program uh, as it relates to this story or, or this part of the chapter, uh, we agnostics. Um, I was clearly an agnostic before program. I was kind of raised as an agnostic. Um, you know, my higher power was uh, Jeff. Um, and, um, and so I did believe in the God of, of reason, my reasoning powers, uh, very analytical person, uh, compulsive overthinker probably. Um, and so my attitude has been, uh, was prior to program that if there was a God, and probably was, um, he was on vacation. And um, so, so how did I develop that kind of thinking, that kind of belief system? Well, I think with like many of us, uh, we develop it through our upbringing, through our parents. And my parents were culturally Jewish. Um, they weren't spiritual. Uh, we celebrated the holidays, the Jewish holidays. Um, and the main aspect of the Jewish holidays was food. So I, you know, I loved the, the food. It was all very high fat, refined flour, sugar laden food. But I, you know, of course I love that because I was a growing food addict. Um, my parents, as I said, uh, did not talk about spiritual things, um, but they required that I go to Hebrew school when I was young, starting at age six. Uh, they labeled themselves conservative Jews uh, even though they had no belief system, no spiritual belief system. Um, and they did that because it was expected in their family. My grandparents expected that the male sons would be bar mitzvahed. Uh, so I was forced to go to Hebrew school. Unlike Bill Wilson, who lived across the street from a church, um, in, you know, and I've been to East Dorset, so I've seen that church. Um, I had to get on a bus or a car and go to Camden, New Jersey, back in the 50s. That was not the most pleasant experience to go to Hebrew school three times a week to Camden, New Jersey. It was a little different back then. But nonetheless, um, so that's, that was my existence until I you know, was bar mitzvahed. Um, and, and then I was done. Um, my parents never mentioned the word God to any of the kids. They didn't talk about God. We didn't pray about anything. My father was a very cynical person. So of course he was probably more than an agnostic. He was probably an atheist, but he never said anything. And try, quite honestly, um, the only time I may have heard the word God mentioned if Late at night, I snuck by my parents' room and I heard my mother saying, oh God, oh God. But I don't think that was about praying. It probably had nothing to do with praying. Um, and um, so that's where I was before I came into OA. 
um, very cynical agnostic. Uh, I would argue with people about religion. You know, the Seventh-day Adventist came to my door to, you know, hand out flyers. I would stand there and argue with the person. I mean, I, that's one of my defects, being argumentative. It kind of served me well in my career. I am retired now, thank God. But um, that's what I was when I came into OA um, 30 years ago. Um, my faith was in my reasoning abilities, my analytical skills. Um, again, as I said, I, I believed in the God of reason. And uh, so what that meant was, I was always trying to think up uh, ways of solving my problems. And I would ruminate on ways of solving my problems. And I could do that endlessly. It would prevent me from falling asleep the, in other words, the burden for everything in my life was, was basically on my shoulders. And so the compulsive thinking and analyzing and problem solving gave me no peace of mind. What it did give me, instead of peace of mind, it gave me a piece of cake because that was one of the fuels for my compulsive eating. Because the compulsive analyzing and having no belief in anything other than myself to solve my problems, to get insight, um, was it burdensome? I have to just say that it was very burdensome. Uh, and when I came into program, the reason I even came into program was because uh, someone had suggested that I needed it. Uh, you know, they could see from my the way I was mentally that I was a kind of disturbed. I, mean, I wasn't disturbed in the sense like I was running around muttering to myself, but. I was uh, someone who, you know, was kind of moody. Uh, and also the circumstances in 1990 precipitated me coming into program or being willing to come into program because I was kind of at a bottom. I was just recently divorced in early 1990. Uh, my finances were terrible. Um, I had unfortunately got quickly into a love relationship, which was not very good after my divorce. And, uh, and I was binging all the time. Um, I lived down the street from this little strip mall that had a 7-Eleven, a Chinese restaurant, and a pizza place. That was like the trifecta for a food addict. And uh, so what was I doing? I was binging every day. I was going there, took three minutes to get there, door to door, got my stuff, would binge. And I do characterize myself as a binge eater, which means I eat huge quantities of my binge food and I eat them very quickly, then I'm full. Sometimes I get so sick I had to throw up. And um, so that's what I was faced with when I came into OA. Uh, and it was a little weird because 95% of the people in the program back then were women. And I wasn't comfortable. I mean, I was kind of shy, believe it or not. And I didn't really feel comfortable being around all women. And so there were a lot of meetings where it was either me and one other guy or just me. Um, I got used to that. And um, so I started to um, work the program, believed in certain spiritual concepts when I came in. Um, I was curious, spiritually curious, which I had never been in my life, spiritually curious. 
as I said, I had been cynical. Um, and so I did not quite honestly, the first several years, um, work the steps very methodically. I picked and chose what steps I wanted to work on, but I was motivated to read about spiritual things. I'm not sure why, that was my higher power that was sort of edging me on to try and read about spiritual things, not, not just in the OA program, but elsewhere. And um, so at some point that curiosity did in fact lead me to develop my own conception of a higher power. And, you know, parts of what the story we just read, you know, always uh, have had a, a real strong influence on me. Um, you know, when they start to talk about the electrons that make up all matter and that we don't even know what motivates them, that, you know, that questioning gave me a degree of faith in something other than myself. I, I even at times think about the fact that, you know, the human mind, although, you know, experts and people in the medical field and scientists can tell you quite a bit about the makeup of the mind, we really don't know what turns on the light bulb at a certain point in existence. And what, what's, you know, what is the human mind? And um, I do look at the human mind as a connection to God. That's my belief system. There's something in the human mind that is connected to a higher power. Um, and I don't believe it just disappears when we die. Um, I will say that when I first came in, the, uh, my higher power was the group was the program, that was my initial higher power. But as the chapter says, you know, there's a broad highway, there's room for differences in spiritual thinking. Nobody ever told me what I had to believe in. Now, of course, my very first meeting when I came into OA and people were talking about God and a higher power, it made me very nervous. I was extremely nervous, the people seemed real nice, but I'm thinking, is this some sort of darn cult? Are these people going to take me into the parking lot, shave my head, drive me to the airport, and make me sell beads to fundraise for them? And of course not. They weren't going to do that. Uh, and they didn't do that. <laughs> I don't think there's any OE meetings that do that. Um, so after I got over my initial uncomfortableness, uh, and because there was this broad highway of ideas and beliefs uh, that we could all have, my spirituality did develop at that point. And the belief in an inner higher power, imminence, that God is within us, that kind of surfaced pretty early in program, um, which is a miracle for me because, again, I was so agnostic. Um, and then I also believed in uh, serendipity, which I don't see too much in the literature, but it really means good things that come to us when they're not sought. And I believe that's part of my higher power. That's something God does for us. And interestingly enough, the story of the minister's son always kind of uh, moves me. And I'll tell you why, not for what the ending is for that story, but for what it represents to me. 
that story is interesting because it talks in terms of a sudden God consciousness. Um, the guy gets a, a thunderbolt experience and feels the conscious connection to his higher power. That he has a connection, that he feels safe, he feels, you know, he has that belief. And uh, I didn't get that. I did not get that. Uh, that's not me. Um, I had the more educational experience that Appendix 2 in this book talks about, um, which led to my having that psychic change. Um, and, and that was what really uh, happened to me over a period of years. Um, and I had trouble changing in my life. Probably the only thing I really ever changed on a regular basis was my underwear. Um, other than that, I was pretty rigid and dogmatic when I came into program, very rigid and dogmatic. But as I started to work the steps and I have to admit, um, I didn't work them every day. I didn't do 10, 11 and 12 until years later. Um, as I started work the steps, I did start to feel some spiritual connection to something outside myself, um, which was important. But that doesn't mean everything. It didn't mean everything for me because I've had relapses. I've had a number of relapses in this program and I attribute it I attribute my relapses to not working the maintenance steps on a daily basis, steps 10, 11, and 12. And, um, you know, and it's kind of interesting. I had that personality change, that psychic change, but when I would go into relapse, that would go away. My connection to a higher power would be gone. Um, people would tell me I was a different person because uh, I was in the food. And, um, but there is a, you know, there is a miracle story behind this because finally, after a number of relapses, several, several years ago, I was going to big book um, weekends. Uh, our intergroup, the South Jersey intergroup has sponsored big book weekends off and on for years. And we would bring in people, one fellow from Arizona, I'm not going to mention names, another guy from Canada. And uh, so I would attend all these in relapse, depressed, but still realizing, and this is my higher power at work, that I had to do it. I had to keep going to meetings. Even when I was in relapse, I kept going to meetings. I kept trying because there was a part of me, my higher power, my inner self told me that I would get through this and maybe get the miracle of sustained abstinence. And so um, I would attend these big book weekends. Kim, how much time do I have by the way? Uh, four minutes. Right, I'm getting there, I'm almost done. Um, so I started attending these big book weekends and um, one of, the, one of the weekends was done by the same guy twice. And the second time that I did this big book weekend, went through all the steps, something clicked. 
I don't I don't know why, but something clicked in this what he said, which he had probably said two times before, was about doing the work on a daily basis, doing the prayer and meditation on a daily basis, connecting with a higher power, doing the inventory, doing service. Now the service part has really helped me to stay abstinent. I sponsor a lot of guys. I, you know, participate in a lot of events and my, my inner group, and that has certainly been important, but I didn't really look at that as being a necessity. I would sporadically do service. I would sporadically do prayer. I would sporadically um, read spiritual books. Uh, but then I realized that, no, I can't do that sporadically. I have to do it every day. And so that insight, which I consider a miracle, did one thing for me. It got me abstinent because I realized what I wasn't doing, and it's kept me abstinent doing those maintenance steps. To me, that is a miracle. Of all the relapses I had, the back and forth with the weight gain, the binging, not to be in that, to have that obsession of the mind removed for my binge foods is a miracle. So it's been several years. I could go into fast food places with one of my kids and not even think about the stuff that's in there. Where did that come from? That, that ability to do that, that miracle to do that. Didn't come from me. I could never will myself not to go in there and not eat the foods, particularly the places that had the, the word Duncan in front of them. Um, and that is something that I appreciate, I'm grateful for. And I believe that's really what has led me to be that way is finally getting my connection to a higher power. And um, that's all, thanks for letting me share. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your share. And if we can stop the recording.